Good morning. We're working our way through the letter to the Hebrews and the chapter we find ourselves in, really, a couple chapters. I, for my money, I don't think there are more inspired chapters in the Bible. We're breathing in rare air when we come to these texts. Um, just to orient ourselves, led by Moses, millions of Egypt's, millions of Israelites, excuse me, exited Egypt and headed to the Promised Land. And only two of the original company arrived. Only two of the, more than that, but only two of the original company arrived. The rest died in the desert. And the writer to this letter kind of does a spiritual autopsy, examines the spiritual condition of those who died in the desert and diagnoses for us the spiritual disease that claimed their lives. Why did so many children of God die in the desert? We saw last week is that they rebelled. It was bitterness. We also saw that they were disobedient. And the word for disobedience is it's a disobedience that's rooted in disbelief. It's when you don't do what somebody says but because you don't trust them. And that's what we find. But what the writer indicates is that the bitterness and the disobedience, these were symptoms. And what we learned is that they were unable to enter, the text says, because of unbelief. That was the root problem. The bitterness, sinfulness, and disbelief-based disobedience those things are the fruit of the problem. The root of the problem is unbelief. That's our problem. Before you treat a problem, it's necessary to accurately diagnose it. The root problem spiritually is unbelief. Disbelief leads to disobedience. Misbelieving leads to misbehaving. Our problem is unbelief. So, therefore, good question. What God's solution? In verse 11 of this text, here's what it says. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And what he does, he gives the solution. And so if we don't want to fall by the same sort of disbelief-based disobedience, what we're told is to enter God's rest. This week and next week, we'll talk about entering God's rest. We'll answer some basic questions. This week, we'll learn where and when and why to enter rest. And then next week, we'll learn about how. It says, to begin, in verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear that any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Fear here is not terror. It's cautious prudence that foresees and avoids 
negative consequences. That's what fear is. If you know that this road is going to lead to something you want and this road is going to lead away from what you want, fear is being prudent to take the right course. That's what fear means. And what the writer is indicating and telling them, don't fail, don't fall behind the rest of God's people and fail to reach the place of rest. And he kind of envisions us traveling with the Israelites in the wilderness where most of them didn't make it. With respect to entering rest, though, it's not about walking fast. That's not what the application is to us. For them, the rest was the promised land. For us, entering God's rest is not about walking. It's about believing what God says. And that's what it says, verse 2. Good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. God gave them a promise, proclaimed good news, and faith is rooted in promises that God gives us. And they missed out on entering rest. They didn't receive what God promised because the message they heard was not united with faith. It wasn't blended with faith. So they were hearers of what God was saying, but they weren't believers in the promise that God was saying. And with respect to God's promises, hearing those promises doesn't benefit us if we don't believe them. That's what the writer is indicating. Hearing and believing, when those things are mixed together, we benefit from the promises. Um, Even though, again, they were hearers, they were not believers. Good news needs to be believed in order for it to be beneficial. Now, the good news they received wasn't the same good news as we receive on this side of the cross. Different good news, but the thing that connects the Israelites in the wilderness with us today is that the promises that God makes don't benefit us if we don't believe them. That's what the writer is indicating. Um, For we who have believed enter God's rest. That's what it says in verse 3. How do we enter God's rest? We who have believed enter God's rest. How do we enter God's rest? By hearing God's word, especially promises, good news. And believing it. Look what it says in verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Pretty straightforward. Not walking, but believing. We who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken, somewhere spoken, of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. In the midst of rebellion, disobedience, sin, and unbelief, the writer 
peers into the heart of God and what he reveals about God's heart is shocking. Shocking. In a world where evil is running amok, God at rest. God at rest. When you're God, rest is what you can do. Rest is the prerogative of deity. If you are all-powerful and all-knowing and all-present, can you be surprised by anything? Can you be made restless by anything? The writer to this letter suggests no. God is at rest, even though the world is running amok. His children are rebelling and bitter and unbelieving, and yet God is at rest. I guess you can say this, can't you? God cannot be God and be restless. You buy that? God cannot be God and be restless. Because if God's restless, it, does, it means he's not all-powerful. Again, okay, he, and he, he invites us to enter his rest. He says, make every effort to enter God's rest. There is not a stronger imperative in the Bible. Priority one. If God were to look at us, assess where we are spiritually, write down one thing and hand it to you. Here's your assessment, and here's the solution, like a doctor, telling you what the deal is. He's taken all the tests, looked at all the scans, says, okay, here's the deal, um, and here's what you do. The prescription, if you look at it, Make every effort to enter God's rest. That's what he would say. We're going, to, we're going to talk about this today. We're going to talk about it next week. As David said, we're going to do a seminar. Actually, we've done a series, but we're going to conclude the series and tie everything up. September 28th, from 8 to 12, we're going to talk about what it means and how you do it, how you enter God's rest. If you're available, come. There's no charge. It's, I can't think. I'm weighing my words carefully. I cannot think of a more important thing to learn spiritually than how to enter God's rest. I can't. Now, not just, and in terms of the text, that's what it seems to indicate. Let's make every effort to enter God's rest. God tells us to enter his rest. Now, I want you to think about what that means. I want you to think about what that means. It says, make every effort to enter God's rest. It doesn't mean that you need to control your restlessness. You can enter God's rest without controlling your restlessness. It doesn't mean that God enters your restlessness and takes it away. You enter his rest. I want you to picture that you have a, a nightmare. You're little. I remember having a nightmare when I was a little kid. My dad, I think I told you about this, he put a suit of clothes on the back of the door in the room where I slept. And for some reason, I had one of those waking, sleeping nightmares. And I had the scary dream, and I woke up, and that 
suit of clothes hanging up on a hanger turned into a guy. The only thing I remember about the guy was he had spikes sticking out of his eyes, and it scared me spitless. And so what I did, I naturally, I was in a bunk. I was in the top of the bunk of the bunk bed, jumped down, flew into my parents' bed, and just dove in the middle. Now, I didn't, when I did that, I didn't stand outside the door to my parents' room until I was under control. I need to rest before I get into my parents' No, that's not what I did. I didn't ask my parents to come into my bed. Mom, Dad, come on. <laughs> Seeing them trying to crawl up into my bunk bed might have been interesting. Um, I didn't do that. They didn't come into my restlessness, and I didn't have to discharge. You know what I did? I was restless. And you know what I did? I dove in between them. And what happened over time? I entered their rest. They were resting. They weren't nervous. My mother put her arms around me and I stayed there. Gradually my breathing came down. Where do we find rest? There's a simple answer. And there's only one. Where God lives. That's where we find rest. Where God lives. Real rest is not where my parents were sleeping for a little kid. But not for big people. We have things to threaten us. We can't run to mom and dad anymore. To all of us, moms and dads, kids, parents, it's we enter God's rest. Rest is where God lives. Let's talk about, okay, that's where rest is. Let's talk about when we enter it. Verse 6. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, that's disobedience-based disbelief. Disobedience rooted in disbelief. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. When do we enter rest? Not, there's not a more difficult time to enter rest. Today. When do we enter rest? Today. Not yesterday. Not tomorrow. Today is when he asks us, tells us to enter his rest. That's it. God commands us to enter his rest today. We can't trust God tomorrow. We can only trust God today. They say in Alcoholics Anonymous, you can drink tomorrow. You just can't drink today. Get it? So I don't have to worry about tomorrow. Because when tomorrow comes, it turns into today. This is tough to do. On a worldly level, we find rest in stockpiled resources. You know what we do? We assess what we're going to need tomorrow, right? How much energy am I going to need? How much money am I going to need? How many friends am I going to need? How much stuff am I going to need? And we identify our resources that we'll need tomorrow, and we 
register them. And if we don't have enough resources for what's coming tomorrow, we get anxious today. But our anxiety today is about what we'll need tomorrow. Would you agree with me? Worldly rest is based in tomorrow. Godly rest is based in today. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today is the day God wants us to enter into his rest. It's normal, just so you know, to enter God's rest today. And we'll talk about that again next week, this week a little bit at the seminar. We'll talk about how to enter God's rest. And if you enter God's rest today and you wake up tomorrow, guess what? Restlessness surfaces again. You can enter rest today, and even sometime during the day today, you have to enter rest again. But, but you get up in the morning, and the restful thoughts of the previous day don't come coursing into your mind, do they? You end up waking up and being restless again. Um, that's why we need to enter rest today, because restlessness resurfaces tomorrow. Entering God's rest is the solution to hard-heartedness, bitter rebellion, and disbelief-based disobedience. Entering God's rest is the solution. And that means entering God's rest isn't nice. Oh, what a nice thing. God wants me to enter his rest. How sweet of him. Entering God's rest is not nice. It's necessary. If restlessness is the problem, rest is the solution. You know, we tend to think powerlessness is the problem. I just need to be better about managing my thoughts and feelings. I just need to be better at managing my resources. I need power. But if you need power, that would indicate that powerlessness is your problem. Powerlessness isn't the problem biblically. It says restlessness is. Restlessness is the problem, and rest is the solution. Um, And it's necessary to enter God's rest. Look what it says in Romans 7. Paul writes, and from a spiritual perspective, we, he feels restless in this text, and then he becomes restful. And as we look at this passage and read it, I want you to try to think about what is it that allows him to go from restless to restful? Okay, let me read it. I find this to be a law. That when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As Paul comes to God, he perceives a split within himself. A split. He doesn't just want to do one thing. Part of him wants to do what God wants, and part of him doesn't. He's split. He's divided. He perceives on the one hand, I want to want what God wants. On the other hand, I don't want what God wants. And when Paul feels this split, it makes him feel restless. Restless. Do you know why we feel restless? Because we don't want one thing. We want two. We want to do what God wants and we don't. Hmm? And that makes us feel restless. And that's what Paul feels. He goes to God. He's feeling restless. He, and with him, he can't control coveting. He's talked about it in the context. I imagine that if you're Paul and God knocks you off a donkey and Jesus appears to you and says, I'm sending you, that you could probably go a ways in that kind of power and influence. Can you imagine that that would fill your sails and that you would propel forward and want to do what God wants you to do? I don't imagine that Paul was very divided to begin with. Jesus said, here I am, hard for you to kick against the goads. I'm going to send you. You're an apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul says, let me at it. And then he goes at it. And then he goes to Thessalonica and get beat up. Goes to Philippi, gets beat up. And then it occurs to him on the way to Corinth, maybe, or Ephesus. Uh-oh. Coveting is sin, and I don't want to go. I imagine that he runs into that. His split, his division, was temporarily submerged by a powerful spiritual experience. But the way spiritual experiences work, whether it be a healing or an answer to prayer, initially we feel bulletproof spiritually. But then, you know what happens. They begin to surface, don't they? The doubts. The things you thought you were done with. There they are. The temptations rising to the surface again. I think that's what Paul experienced. And I think he tried to control it, and he couldn't, and he was desperate. And what he does, he cries out to God, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God does something. And let's see what he does. On the front side of this salvation, here's what he says. I see in my members, in verse 23, I see in my members, because he's going to cry out for salvation in 24 and get it in 25. So this is 23. This is before salvation. I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells on my members. The law of God in the mind and the law of sin in the members, right? So Paul is divided. And because he's divided, he is restless. Okay? Then... Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Oh, oh, thanks be to God 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, now on the far side of salvation. Now we're in 25 and uh, the last part of the passage. And he says, okay, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Wait, wait, a, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He, he serves the law of God with his mind, but with his flesh, the law of sin. He's still divided. He was divided here, and he's divided here. What kind of salvation is that? Do you know what the deal is, though? Here, he's restless. And here, he's not. His condition is the same. What happened? How did he go from restless to restful? What was the salvation? Here's what he heard. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He feels the split, feels restless. Here's God say, Paul, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. I see your split, and I'm not condemning it. Oh, goes from rest less to rest full. The voice of God, you know what he said? I see your split, and I'm not condemning you. I'm not condemning you. This is when Paul understood God's rest. This is when Paul learned to enter rest. If you need to overcome your dividedness to enter God's rest, you'll never enter it. Or you'll enter it for a short period of time. But those temptations are going to creep back to the surface again. It's just going to happen. God's rest isn't the absence of internal conflict. God's rest, listen to me, it's not the absence of internal conflict. God's rest is the absence of eternal condemnation. That's what rest is about. I think this is true. It's going to seem weird when I put it up there. See what you think. Hmm? What do you think? If you need to be sinless to be restful, you'll never be restful. This is surprising, though. We hear and assume that God sees our sinfulness and goes, <laughs> and that our sin makes God restless. That can't be, though, can it? If God is at rest, can your sin make him Restless. Here's the question. What would happen if you believed that? That your sin did not make God restless. What would happen if you believed that? You know what would happen? You would begin to enter his rest. Do you understand what I'm saying? You'd begin to enter his rest. Um in entering God's rest, we don't exit our restlessness. We don't control our restlessness. We 
seem to need to differentiate between the voice, the voice of God and the voice of God. You know what the voice of God says when you experience your dividedness? Don't just sit there, do something. I mean, look at you. Look at what you think. Look at what you want. Don't just sit there, do something. You know what the voice of God says? Don't just do something, sit there. Sit there. That's what happens when you enter God's rest. Oh, wait, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. This is dangerous, isn't it? I mean, really? What happens if we believe this? We do all kinds of lousy things, right? Right? I mean, that's what we think. I'm not just playing. We think we need the threat of judgment, the threat of a slap to keep us in line. Interestingly, resting doesn't lead to self-centered rebellion. Restlessness does. Restlessness is the problem. Do you understand? If restlessness is the problem, what's the solution? What's the solution? Rest. We get it backwards. We think if I was at rest, then that would unplug me spiritually. It's the opposite. Restlessness unplugs us. Now again, are you going to be able to go out of here and solve your restlessness? No, but you know what you can do? You can rest today. And then you'll have to apply it tomorrow. Let us therefore enter God's rest so that we may, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Um, Where do we find rest? We've done where and when. We'll talk, we'll do why now and then how next week. And we'll reiterate these things on Saturday the 28th. Where do we find rest? There's only one place with God. Because God's the only one who is powerful and sympathetic enough to be at rest. So rest is with him. That's where. When do we find rest? The answer to that is today. Today we enter God's rest. Okay, now, why? Because restlessness is at the root of rebellion, bitter resentment, and disbelief-based disobedience. That's one reason why we enter rest. Because rest is the solution, because restlessness is the problem. You say, well, that's what the writer is saying happened in the wilderness. The bitter rebellion, the disobedience, all the things, the graves in the wilderness, what the writer says, that was because of restlessness. Is Right? And if we understand the problem clearly... We can understand the solution. Restlessness is the problem. Rest is the solution. Um, it gives us another reason why. It's kind of, it goes along with it. Look what it says in verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay, I want you to imagine, we've talked about this before, you're on a table, okay? 
You're on a table. Naked. Somebody standing over you with a really sharp sword. And they tell you, here's what I'd like you to do. Tip your head back. I know. I know what you're going to do. You'll doze right off to sleep, right? Right off to sleep. I'm naked. He has a sharp sword. He's telling me to bend my neck back. So it makes, I guarantee you, if you're on that table, you're not going to take a snooze. What it indicates is that the Word of God and the Word of God that exists at the time are the 39 books of the Old Testament, which tend to be heavy in judgment. Would you agree? Easy to rest when you read about some of the accounts of what happens in the Old Testament? Pretty easy to rest? Oh, sure it is. Oh, come on, come on. Read about the 70 men of Beth Shemesh who, when the Ark of God was taken captive, and it went to the Philistines, and the Philistines said, yippee-dippee, we've got the ark of God in us until everybody developed hemorrhoids. Again, I don't, I don't get it why God's going to, oh, God's a pain in the, okay, so that maybe, there's, maybe that's why. Uh, but anyways, that's what happened, that's what ended up happening. And so the Philistines said, oh, you know, we got to get this out of here. So they get the Ark of God out, and it moves out, and it stops. And then the 70 men of Beth Shemesh, they were cruising, and they were probably liquored up. And they said, hey, this looks like interesting. Let's go to look at this thing. And so they look into the Ark. 70 of them have evaporated, killed. And there's all kinds of things that happen in the Old Testament. And if you read through the Old Testament, it doesn't make you feel very restful, does it? And what it indicates is that the... The Word of God, and the Word of God that it suggests at the time, is the books of the Old Testament. Um, again, there's all kinds of good stuff, but there's not enough good stuff to override the bad stuff. Discerning means judging. It doesn't mean that the Word of God discerns the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. It means it judges them. Discerning, I think, was used in order to make it nicer, but that's not the Word. The word is judging. Thoughts and attitudes are thoughts and feelings. So here's what the word of God does. It assesses your thoughts and feelings and judges them. Good, bad, good, bad, right, wrong, up, down. And then that is the influence of the word of God, the Old Testament. Now, when it's your good and bad is being assessed, are you cult? Are you lusting or not? Stealing, coveting. Coveting is the Tenth Commandment. So that's, I don't, Paul, that's the one Paul couldn't beat. When Paul is wrestling with sin in his members, I don't think, well, I don't know, but I, I, the sin Paul was wrestling with was coveting. And he was indicted by it. He says, I can't control my thoughts. Imagine that, he can't control his thoughts. I mean, how many of us can control our thoughts? Can't. Can't. And God judges your thoughts. The Word of God judges your feelings. That's what it indicates. And all are naked and exposed. The the impression of being totally exposed and utterly defenseless. That's what it means when it says naked and exposed. To be exposed is for, for the neck to be elongated. So... 
To be naked and exposed is to be overwhelmed by the fear of death. The image is of being strip-searched. Some commentaries try to put a nice face on this. No. No, I don't. Why do we need to enter God's rest? Because the voice of the Old Testament word of God, which is the only word that existed at that point, the New Testament didn't exist, the influence of the Old Testament word of God, the voice of the Old Testament word of God, and the voice of the Son of God are not the same voice. What Jesus says, there is no condemnation for those who are in me. The Old Testament says, I see what you're thinking, stop it. I see what you're feeling, quit it. Restless, and that's the image. And what Jesus says, Old Testament says condemnation. What Jesus says, look at me, don't listen. There's no condemnation for those who are in me. There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. I see what you're thinking. There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in me. No condemnation. No condemnation. No, no, no condemnation. It's not that he just doesn't say anything. He doesn't give you the silent treatment. You know, how did I do, Dad? You kind of, we fill in the blanks. God doesn't allow us to fill in the blanks. He says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What happens if you believe that? You know what starts to happen? You start to enter into... We enter God's rest as we believe our sin doesn't make God restless. This sounds controversial, but this is really basic Christianity, isn't it? Would you agree? This sounds controversial, but it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be controversial. This is basic Christianity. This is Christianity 101. This is foundational. This isn't highfalutin theologies. This is this. It's what belief stands on. God's Son doesn't judge us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is in us and with us and goods ahead of us guarantee. Oh, we've got to watch out. Uh, that, that grace stuff is dangerous. And it's not grace that's dangerous. It's restlessness that's dangerous and judgment that's dangerous. Restlessness is the problem. And if restlessness is the problem, tell me what the solution is. What is it? Rest. Entering God's rest. Hard to do. Hard to do. To enter God's rest, and we'll talk about it next week. And again on Saturday, we'll talk about it. We've answered a couple of questions. Where do we enter God's rest? With God. Because rest exists. Where do we enter rest? With God. Because God is at rest. That's it. When do we enter rest? Today. Why do we enter rest? Because restless unbelief is the problem. And because restful belief is the solution.
and more next week. Come on up, Brett. We're going to sing a closing song. Will you pray for us? So, God, we heard, and belief doesn't happen all of a sudden. It, it's a process. We retain your word. We don't just hear it, but we we start to believe it. And we believe it a little bit more and a little bit more. This is not something that's all of a sudden. You're not in a hurry. It's not do it now. Yeah. It just Would you help us to keep this kind of thought in our head? That restlessness is the problem and entering your rest is the solution. And it's really challenging to do. It sounds easy, but it's challenging. But it's worth the effort because it's where growth lies. It's where Christ-likeness lies in your rest as we learn to enter it. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.